Well, the text I pray the Lord be pleased to speak to us from this morning is the Gospel of Luke chapter 5. Luke's Gospel chapter 5 verses 33 through 39. I want to speak on the theme, addicted to the old, afraid of the new. Addicted to the old, afraid of the new. Luke chapter 5 beginning with verse 33. Then they said to him, Why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees? But yours eat and drink. And he said to them, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast. In those days, then he spoke a parable to them. No one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one, otherwise the new makes a tear. And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, or else the new wine will burst the wineskins and be spilled. And the wineskins will be ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And no one, having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Change is difficult for all ages. Now, normally we think it's most difficult for those who've lived the longest and have more established Routines, but that's just not so. Change is difficult for all people of all ages. The kind of change that involves things that we do not have experience with is the the kind of change that frightens us the most. Now, when we change from winter to spring, well, everybody likes those kinds of changes, and if you Replace an old worn out vehicle with a brand new one. Well, you're happy about that kind of change. It's changes from the comfortable routines to the unpredictable circumstance that we don't like. Although Jesus described his people to Nicodemus as a people of the wind, we would prefer something less volatile than wind, wouldn't we? It's that unknown quality about wind that Jesus used as an illustration that concerns us the most. The unknown always appears to be unstable to us, and therefore it's intimidating. But it seems, as we sang a few moments ago, that our Heavenly Father is always introducing into our lives the unpredictable. And he seems to reserve comfort only after we've suffered tribulation for a while. It would appear that our Lord would have us in a constant state of flex. So that we would forever be in a state of desperate dependency upon him. Now, in our Lord's answer to the question of John's disciples and the Pharisees as to why his disciples did not pray and fast... His answer involved an illustration concerning new wine. Now, this message is going to be a little different than some of the sermons that I've preached here before. I would say this is more a pastoral sermon, even though I'm not a pastor 
of this church. But I still carry within me a pastoral heart after doing so for 30 years. And sometimes pastors find it very awkward and to speak on these kinds of subjects. And so it's more uh, easy for me to do, be able to do so. What I would like to propose to you this morning is to get right to the text and just offer to you a summary of it and the correct interpretation, thereby giving us more time to look at the practical experiential application of the text. Jesus is answering a question by John's disciples who were taught by John the Baptist how to pray and how to fast. And of course, the Pharisees practiced similar methods of prayer and fasting. But they noticed that Jesus' disciples didn't give themselves to that. They were busy with Jesus entertaining folks, eating and drinking, being ushered from one invitation to dine to another. And so after observing this behavior, they questioned Jesus Why have you not taught your disciples? Because ultimately, that's what they're asking. If the disciples are not praying and fasting like we are, it's because you've been negligent in teaching them. You're not doing what John did for us. And Jesus answers very succinctly. Why would they pray? Why would they fast when it's not a time for prayer and fasting? This is a time of celebration. They have me, the bridegroom, with them But when I'm gone, then they will pray and fast. So what does Jesus do? What is his answer saying? It's simple. The answer is that there has been a change in God's economy. No, the commerce and the currency of the economy has not changed. It's still grace. The old covenant was a covenant of grace. There's grace from Genesis to Malachi, all the way through. But the way we conduct ourselves in the economy and the motivations are completely new. You see, in the Old Covenant, there was only two reasons for prayer and fasting. Petitioning God, especially fasting during a need, a crisis, or because it was prescribed in the law of Moses. Those were the basic two reasons for prayer and fasting. Jesus introduces that there is coming a change, and it's all to deal and centers revolves around him himself, his presence, and the manifestation of his presence. They don't pray and fast currently at the time of the text because they had the manifestation of the presence of God. Jesus completely shifts the reason and motivation for prayer and fasting. It's now about experiencing the bridegroom, Christ. And after his bodily ascension, well, prayer and fasting will once again be about experiencing the the manifestation of the presence of God. That's why they would now long to pray, long to fast. They would have such a hunger and yearning for fellowship with God 
That they would get alone with God in that secret place, the closet of prayer. And there they would commune with Him. You see, the radical shift is just not bringing petitions. It's just not because it's involved in the law of Moses and now your duty. It's about the experiencing of the genuine fellowship of God. He radically changes the motivation for these things. For you see, it is God who provides new wine and new wineskins. As we look at this illustration, we must remember we cannot wring out of any parable more than what is intended. They're not allegories. They're simply illustrations. They have a truth or two to illustrate. But in this illustration... Jesus uses an old garment and a new patch and old wine and new wine to make his point. And the point is, the new wine represents the new covenant of God. Christ was the establishment, the institution, the inauguration of the new covenant in which you and I now abide and enjoy. And the parable teaches us a few principles I think mostly it would say to you and I today here at Redeemer Church that this new wine is not just characteristic of the new covenant of God, but of the moves of God's manifested presence among us. The reason we read John chapter 2 is only because of the last line, the line of the master of the feast. Normally, you would bring out the best wine until everybody's drank and become intoxicated and you bring out the inferior wines. But you've saved the best for last. Jesus inaugurated his ministry by establishing that he has something far better than the law of Moses. Something far greater than what the old covenant could provide. Oh, it was a blessed covenant indeed, that old covenant. It was beautiful. As I said a moment ago, it was chocked full of grace. It typified that which we now celebrate in reality. The shadows and the types of the old covenant pointed to what we now have. Vibrant and real living within us. In reality, Christ himself. We have the promise that the Spirit is within each one of us. Not a select few mediators that God appointed, but upon all flesh, all of his children, he has poured out his spirit. And in this new wine that we are now enjoying, we have the luxury, the privilege, and the opportunity to not just experience God once, and that has to be all that you'll have until you see him again. But we have the opportunity to drink from Him, to feast upon Him, to receive living water, wine to invigorate, wine to stimulate, wine poured out upon us fresh and new. And so I ask us today, did you come with cups, not a few, so that God could fill you afresh? That you could experience the vitality of your Savior once again? Or are you satisfied with one drink? 
that you had a few years ago when God saved you. Oh, friend, there's new and fresh experiences in the Lord. I'm not here to preach paranormal things or oddities. No, not at all. I'm here to tell you that Jesus is alive. He's real. And He's really alive right here, right now. The new wineskin that He's talking about here represents, I think, the method or structure that contains the new wine. You see, when God does new things, never in contrary to the Word of God, but within the parameters of His Scripture, when He freshly manifests Himself to you personally or corporately, He always uses means and methods. He utilizes agency. He uses individuals. He uses methods. But it's not for you and I to make the wineskins or the wine. God is the maker of both the wine and the wineskins. And this is what our poor charismatic friends have fatally and terribly miscalculated. They have a hunger and a thirst to experience God. But they will not wait upon the Lord in prayer and fasting. Setting their face to seek the Lord. They get impatient. So what do they do? They come up with inventions of their own. Some method. New idea in order to experience the presence of God. It might be a new mood light. Or it might be a a new kind of music. Or it... uh, uh, a fog machine or whatever kind of practice get, can come up to generate some kind of sense of God's presence. And my dear friends, you can't do that. And you must not do that. It is the Lord who provides the new wine. And isn't it interesting on the day of Pentecost that those who mocked those 120 referred to the new wine? In Acts chapter 2, verse 13, others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Well, they were right indeed. It was new wine. They were mistaken. It was not the fruit of the vine, but the fruit of the vine, (laughs) Jesus Christ. Yes, it was new wine. And you see this theme reoccurring. God is the creator of the vineyard, and he's the grower who tends to the vines. This is God's sovereign work through Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit. But what I want you to hear me today and believe is that God's not finished doing that. He still is working, and he wants to work through us. He wants to visit us. The only thing that can turn this into a genuine worship service is not a new liturgy. The thing that can make this a vibrant experience with the living God is not new songs. And it's not even a new man in the pulpit. No, the only thing that can turn our corporate gatherings into a a little heaven on earth is the new wine of God poured out afresh upon us. Oh, dear saints of Redeemer Church, are you hungry for a stirring, not just of your own soul, but in the the midst of the body of Christ? A new work, 
a new energy, a new power poured out afresh upon you. These outpourings of the Holy Spirit are controlled by the sovereignty of God. And that's why we now pray and fast. This is what the text is saying. There's no reason for them to have prayed and fasted. They had him right there bodily. But now he's at the right hand of the Father. We can't turn to our right or to the left and see him bodily as they could. We don't have him right here with us. That if we had a need, we can run to him and say, Lord Jesus, I, I ask you for this. As they could. could. Do you imagine how those men lived for those three years? No wonder they didn't have to pray hardly and didn't know how to pray. They had Christ, God in the flesh right there. And he provided for everything they needed. Even their families were took, taken care of by the master. You don't believe me? Well, how many baskets did they pick up after the first miraculous feeding? Twelve baskets. And then, interesting, one for every family of the disciples. I know that's conjecture, but I like it. Don't wake me up from my delusion. But certainly, seriously, they were provided for. Even the family was provided for by the master. And though, therefore, they didn't pray. But now he's gone, and we don't have him with us as they did. And so what must we do? Pray. And seek his face. Fast. Look to him. Come to him and say, God, I'm so hungry for you that even I'm more hungry for you than the food on my table can satisfy this body. Only you can satisfy my soul. And so this is what this new wine represents. And the wine determines the container. Did you notice that? The wine determines the container. Jesus said, you don't put new wine in old wine skins. So the kind of wine determines what kind of wine skin is necessary. God gives the wine and he creates the method by which the wine is contained. And God's ways must be unrestricted. God seldom works in the same way. Have you noticed that? Let me give you some biblical examples of that. Now, there are certain things I must qualify, otherwise you'll think me a heretic. Salvation is salvation from beginning to end. It's of the Lord, and it's always by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, granting regeneration, which grants faith and repentance, and there's never been an exception. And there will be no exceptions. Can I hear an amen? So we're not talking about a new way of getting saved. And certainly the word of God is steadfast, irrevocable, and we don't need any more new books. Can I hear another amen? I'm a little, a little more faint than the other one. This is the eternal, unchanging word of God. We're not talking about a new manual. What we are talking about is that the way in which he works, his ways, his will, according to his word in our lives and in the life of a church. And from the beginning of the Bible to the end, we're constantly seeing that the Lord uses a variety, a host of methods. And he does that purposely for your good. Let me give you some of those examples. 
2 Samuel chapter 5, verses 17 through 25, is an example from the life of David. 2 Samuel chapter 5, let's begin reading with verse 17. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. You see, the Philistines had had given refuge to David while Saul was pursuing him. Now he's the king of Israel. They feel betrayed, and so they're out to kill him. And David heard of it, and he went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went up and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. So David inquired, he prayed of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up. For I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hands. So David went to Baal, Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, The Lord has broken through mine enemies before me like a breakthrough of water. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal, Perazim. And they left their images there, and David his men carried them away. Verse 22, notice something happens. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. They were doing the same old thing. They came against David again. Verse 23, Therefore David inquired of the Lord and he said, And he said, You shall not go up. Circle around behind them, come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of the marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. Now I have to congratulate David here, because he is not acting like 99% of us here today. If God had given us such a tremendous victory as he had given David, what would have us, what would most of us have done the second time it happened? Well, we would have said to ourselves, oh, God has given me the victory. I know exactly what to do. I'll go down just like I did the last time and God will give them to me. But David had learned something about God that some of us have yet to learn. That God is sovereign and that he seldom does the same thing in the same way All the time. And so he wisely prayed again. And sure enough, God had a new method. A new wineskin for him. And he obeyed, employed the new wineskin. And God gave him the victory. Or what about Moses? Early in their wanderings in the wilderness, the people became thirsty. There was no water. And so they murmured and complained. Went to Moses. Moses went to the Lord in prayer, and the Lord said, Strike the rock, and I will pour out a river, and the people can drink and be satisfied. And sure enough, Moses struck the rock, and water came out. Years later, the same problem arose. There was not enough water to quench the thirst of the people in the flocks. And so Moses again prayed. Very good. He prayed. And the Lord told him, Go to the rock and speak to it. But what does Moses do? He doesn't obey as David did in 2 Samuel 5. He strikes the rock. Nothing happens. He strikes a second time. God in his mercy lets water come out. But Moses forfeited his ability to go into the promised land. 
because he didn't obey the Lord. Uh, I can go through the Bible and I will not bore you with such details. But, dear friend, there's a reason why God seldom does the same thing in the same way. It's because for your faith. If you and I knew always how we were to approach everything in life, do you think we would trust in the Lord? Do you think we would really exercise faith? Or would we be guilty of presuming upon the Lord? Well, I think you and I both know the answer. We would be guilty of presumption. No, God introduces change and circumstances that are unpredictable in order to keep us humbly depended upon Him. Just as we sang from that hymn that John Newton wrote so long ago. You see, over the course of 400 years, almost 400 years, God has not changed His methodology. And if you go back another 300, another 1,000, He's not changed. And neither has the heart of man. We are proud and egotistical and self-centered. And so God brings into your life things you've never faced before. Challenges that require a new wineskin, a new move of the Holy Spirit and His work. And thereby, you can remain desperately dependent upon Him. How many times must I say to you all, you'll never become truly dependent as you ought until you are first desperate. That's the problem of our hearts. And we seldom like new ways. In Luke chapter 5 verse 39, the end of our text, Jesus tells us, our problem is we don't like new things. And no one having drunk old wine immediately desires new, for he says the old is better. Now notice, they don't taste the new. They don't try it out. They don't give it a shot. No, they just simply say, hey, old is better than new. And they don't even try it. Why? Well, it's just human nature. We like the predictable because the predictable means that I can acquire some skill to control my circumstances. To navigate through them. I know what to do. I'm not in the shooting in the dark. I I don't feel like I've been blindsided. It's again the unknown that frightens us. Oh, dear friend, if you're going to walk with God, And let God lead you in this journey of grace. You're going to have to learn to develop sensitivity to God. And His ways. And His ways require sensitivity. Because He seldom does the same thing the same way all the time. And that's why I want to encourage you as a church today. Don't hold too tightly to your structures. Church structures must bow to God's ways. Do you know what I mean by church structures? What's the way we do church, if I can use it or say it that way? You know, you may not have a liturgy like some churches, high churches and formal churches do, but, you know, you can almost know. They don't even have to print out the little bulletin schedule of service you know what's going to happen you just may not know who's going to do it that morning but you know what comes after this and comes after that that's an example or even the way administratively a church or ministries of a church all of these things that we do are our structures of ministry and we never need we must not need to hold on cling to them too tightly because you'll miss god if you do
What will happen is you will have more faith in the structure than in the Lord God himself. The apostles, for example, were waiting on tables. They were feeding the widows and they realized that they got to change the ministry if they're really going to do the work of the Lord. And so they were willing to adapt and be flexible and follow the Lord. The early church had to change its focus from being Jewish to a new creation that was neither Jew nor Gentile, but a whole brand new humanity, a brand new race of mankind. They had to learn to adapt. This is the way God was leading And it was difficult for some. You see it even for Peter there in Galatians chapter 2. But if we're going to follow where the Lord leads, we've got to develop this sensitivity and not cling to our structures. And there comes a time in God's economy, He will do it whether it's necessary or not, just to keep us sensitive, just to keep us dependent, just to keep us in prayer and fasting, seeking the manifestation of His presence and communion, that He'll change, He'll introduce change. And the need for new structures will arise in the life of any church. Let me give you a A real clear example of this in history. As culture has changed since the 19th century, many churches have not learned to be in prayer and fasting and hear God's ways of ministering to the times. For example, the day in American society when a large percentage of sinners went to church, that day is over. When this was the case, it was wise for churches to have evangelistic services. This was the main way to do evangelism in those days. Sunday evening became traditionally known as the evangelistic service. But today, that method would not work because sinners by and large don't even come to church on Sunday morning, much less Sunday night. And yet we continue to think that church services... Even on a Sunday morning, we most of us don't even have Sunday night services. No problem there. I'm not here to criticize that. But even we've turned the Sunday morning service now into the mini evangelistic crusade and the pastor gives an evangelistic message. Today, for evangelism to take place, we're going to have to be more sensitive to God and I think follow a pattern established by the early church. When individual Christians were more actively sharing their faith both verbally and behaviorally. You see, a sinner is more likely to come to your house once a trustful relationship has been uh, established with them than they are to come to this building and assemble with you collectively. And the tradition of seeing the church as a crusade auditorium where the only duly authorized evangelist or witness is the pastor, that must be shed, abandoned. It is not for our days. We, on the other hand, must do what? Well, I'll tell you what you need to do. You don't need to do anything until God leads you. Because He will lead you. That's what we need to be doing. I've said it before. I don't know if I've said it here. The best thing a lot of churches could do is to shut down all of their services and just gather to pray and seek the Lord until God shows up and gives direction. I didn't get an amen and didn't anticipate to get one on that thought. That's a radical idea. That's a new wine and new wineskin altogether, isn't it? But why not? 
Do we think we're capable? Do we think we have the wherewithal to reach this lost and dark generation? Do we think that our cleverness is enough ingenuity to draw them in? Foolishness and vanity, if you think that. No. This is His church. We are His sheep. And He is our shepherd. He's the master builder. We are simply living stones placed severally as He wills. Then we must stand at attention with sensitive souls to the voice of the master as He leads us. He has the secret for Graham, Texas. Many years ago, I was conducting a pastor's conference and it was time for the Q&A. One young man thought he was going to get one over me. I knew what he was doing. He said, uh, have you ever read Rick Warren's book, Purpose Driven Church? Well, he knew that I hadn't read that, but he was chagrined when I answered, yes, I've read it and only read it, read it twice. Then he was taken aback. And then I said, let me tell you the best thing I got out of Rick Warren's Purpose Driven Church, which is nothing more than his wineskin on how to do church. I said, the best thing was in the introduction. When he went there to that place in California as a young man, he said he didn't know what to do, so he prayed and prayed and prayed until the Lord gave him what he wrote about in the book. And I said, that's the best advice he's ever given. If you don't know what to do, just pray and seek God until God shows you. And friends, that's still the biblical method that I know, the only one I know of. You seek the Lord. He has the new wine, and he has the new wine sin. So I say, church traditions must bow to God's ways. We should ask, why do we do the things that we do? I'm sure all of you have heard the humorous illustration, haven't you, of the new bride who always cut the end of her roast off before she put it in the pan? Some of you act like you've never heard this story, so let me tell you. Yes. And the new husband began to observe this. Every time she cooked a roast, she'd lop off one end of it, put it in the pan, put it in the oven. And after a few times, he asked her, Sweetheart, why do you do that? Why do you cut off the perfectly good end of the roast before you cook it? She says, Well, I really don't know, but that's the way my mama did it. And so she called mom out of curiosity. Mom, why did you do the roast the way you cut off the end before you put it in the pan? She says, Well, sweetheart, I really don't know either. Uh, your your grandmother did it that way. And so they called grandma, and grandma said, Well, when my when I got married to your father, we were so poor, we only had one pan, and it was always too short for the roast, so I just cut off the one end of it to put it in the pan so it fit, and that's how we did it. And so we have to see and ask, why are we doing the things that we are doing? Otherwise, you might be in what I call a rut. And you know what a rut is, don't you? It's a grave with both ends kicked out of it. Many of us are congratulating ourselves on our rut. We come to church. We go through the motions. We've had a service. The sermon was stirring. We felt the wonderful warmth of the fellowship of the God's people. And we went home. But there was no move of God. Sinners left unsaved. Christians left dull of heart. As they came. And we do it all over again the next Sunday. Oh friends aren't we weary. Of the routine. Which is really now a rut. Aren't we weary of it. Is there any call in your heart. 
any, any fleeting of a desire for more. You say, but that's all I know. Isn't that what is church life? Oh, it's that, but it's more than that. We must have our structures. We have to have our methods. We have to have our wineskins. But again, the wine determines the wineskin. A fresh new move of God will determine the methods and the structures. May the wind of the Spirit blow again. Could our refusal to lay aside a tradition grieve the Holy Spirit? Well, how then do we discover God's new wineskins? Well, I suggest to you that's what the parable is saying. You wait on God with prayer and with an open Bible. Now is the time to be praying and fasting. Now's the time to be seeking the Lord that He would lead and guide us and that we would experience the fellowship of His presence. How many dear saints of God do I have here that your prayer closet has become an echo chamber? All you can hear is the muttering of your words as you quote, Say your prayers, end of quote. There's no vitality. You've known those moments when every time you walked in with an open Bible and with a heart hungry and thirsting, believing the promises of this book, you experienced God. Oh, I'm not asking for supernatural phenomenon. No, we have a new covenant which promises the Holy Spirit in me. Influencing me, filling me, guiding me, communing with me, teaching me. No, the new covenant's much better than the old. Yes, it had its pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And yes, on the day of Pentecost, there was a wind, a rushing wind and a cloven tongues of fire upon them. But friends, it's not the phenomenon we're after. It's the substance and the reality of Christ that we're after. Oh, that God would rim the heavens and come down and shatter our routine with His presence. So you, you pray, you fast. You believe, secondly, God will lead you. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will guide you with my eye. But then there's the warning, don't be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, which must be harnessed with bit and bridle, else they will not come near you. I think many of us could be equated to the horse and the mule. We'll do what God wants us to do, but he has to put the bit and bridle in our mouth and almost force it upon us. Oh, friends, that's not the way of the Spirit. So pray the open Bible. Believe God will lead you. And then thirdly, observe God's activities. Start learning to look and see God at work around you. This is the way Jesus operated. In John chapter 5 verse 19. Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son of Man can do nothing of Himself but what He sees the Father do. For whatever He does, the Son also does in like manner. In other words, Jesus is saying, I get up every morning and I begin to observe where my Father's working. He'd learn 
He had developed that sensitivity that he could discern. That's God at work right there. And he simply joined his father. He got involved in the things that God was involved with in his life and around him in his environment. That's what we must do. That's the wind of the Spirit. That's being led by the Spirit. It's not rocket science. It's not feeling Holy Ghost doodads running up and down your spine. It's not some phenomenon. No, no, no. It's simply learning that this book is true. God is always at work. And even if you don't feel it, He's at work within you. You just haven't learned to notice it and see it. Learn the ways of God. Join Him. We're called to be a people of the wind. A people of new wine and new wine skins. And that requires a deep-seated trust in God's goodness. Oh, my doubting friend. I know you've gone through severity. And trials and hardships. It's almost dulled your heart. Hardened your heart. But listen to me. The trial came. As that song said earlier. To expose your own unbelief. Don't you see the problems? Not whether God's good to you. It's whether you believe God is good. Don't you see that? Sometimes it takes hardship like that. To show us. Our own unbelief. Most of us would rather depend upon the paycheck. The routine of our lives. The status quo. We want the church to never change. Perpetuate the old wineskins. Celebrate God's activity in the past. With little to no faith it will ever be different. Now listen closely. This is the way of all men, including Christians. God does something special. A season where God pours out new wine. People are revived. Sinners are saved. It's an incredible thing. I was asked one time, why are there so many denominations? And this answer is very simple. God did something at the beginning of that denomination. It was wonderful. But man began to be more concerned about the wineskin that God used than the wine. And they began to dry up. And so God would do a new work of God. He'd use a new vessel and they would see a move of God. And what would they do with time? Turn it into a denomination and a system. And on and on. It's gone over and over. The cycle continues. Because when God pours something holy into frail vessels like you and me, we have this innate tendency and inclination to be more concerned about the structure than the vitality. More concerned about the wineskin than the wine. And so what happens? We gravitate to the old wineskins. It happens with no effort, no thought. And once you're there, it's so hard to trust God for new wine, which will require new wineskins. We idolize the method that's what many people are doing in Christendom today. They're idolizing what God did 150, 200 years ago. And they'll do nothing if it would jeopardize 
The golden calf, if you please. The old institution, the old wineskin. You can't put the fresh move of God into old methods. God won't let it happen that way. Now again, I'm not saying you go outside of the parameter of scriptures and do things that are not scriptural. No sola scriptura must be our, our declaration and our resolve. This is our protection, but friends, if it's within the parameters of this book, we have to have a sensitivity to be led as God leads. That's all I'm advocating. And so as I conclude, I ask you, is there a hunger to meet with God afresh and anew? As an individual, as a believer, is there something in your heart that says, oh God, there's got to be more. My heart's become stale. There's a dullness of soul, Lord, I need you to revive me today. I need new wine this morning. Oh, there's freshness. Did not Jesus teach his disciples in Luke 11 to pray for the Holy Spirit? Why? Well, yes, I agree you can't get any more of the Holy Spirit than you already have, but he can get more of you. You can have more of His influence, more of His power in your life. And so, therefore, He teaches us that to ask for the Holy Spirit, if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more they shall your Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to them that ask Him. Yes, we're to be intoxicated with Him. Don't be drunk with wine wearing His excess, but be filled, be intoxicated, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Are there not more measures and degrees of His influence you could receive this morning? And is your heart hungry for them? I ask you, I challenge you, in the name of Jesus Christ, whom I stand here representing, is there that desire? And if not, oh my dear friend, examine yourself to see if you are in the faith or not. Because the one distinctive qualification of a Christian is more of Him. Always hungry for more of Him. And when you're not hungry for more of Him, you're miserable. Is there a misery of soul today? Is there something within you that could cry like a dirge, a song of sorrow? Oh, God, would you visit me? Whatever this man's trying to say, Lord, give me understanding and let it happen right here, right now. I need you. Is that the cry of your heart? Or are you drinking from an old wineskin, an old wine, trying to live off an old experience rather than staying fresh with the Savior? Who is life indeed. Well, praise be to God. There's hope for us today. We have a Savior who when He turned water into wine, did it more abundantly than all needed. He did it profusely, abundantly, with great immensity. He gave and He gave and He gives today. And all He needs is you to listen to His Word and to bring your heart as a vessel that He might feel anew. Amen. And amen. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, what a hope we have today in our blessed Savior that You do give and give 
all that we need and then some. And Father, today, we thank you for your past movements of your Holy Spirit in our life. We wouldn't be saved without that. But today, Lord, we're hungry for something else. A fresh visitation. Once again, Father, to have our minds set upon him. To be fastened in affections upon him. Riveted in our heart upon he who is altogether lovely. Lord, we've strayed from that. What was true is no longer truth. We're going through the motions. We've learned them so well. The system has been thoroughly adapted and adopted. and We know what to do, when to do it, and how to do it. And we've called that Christianity. Lord, forgive us for quenching and grieving your spirit. Come, Holy Spirit. Come, even now. And Lord, I pray for Redeemer Church. I thank you for what you have done and are doing. And I pray in the days to come that the wind of the Holy Spirit and the wine of heaven will be poured out in copious amounts in new ways to reach this town, this area, this state, this world. And we ask it humbly, knowing we're unworthy of such things. But because of him who is worthy, Jesus Christ our Lord, we pray. Amen.